0: Welcome to the Bookshelf and more stories from Pivot Spokane, Spokane's live storytelling event, which has returned as the original event with an audience in a space, and that is the Washington Cracker Building, and these were performances from June 17th, which we heard last night, are hearing tonight, and we'll hear tomorrow night. Last night we heard from Katie Blackburn and Adam Schluter. Tomorrow night we hear from Keonta Duncan and Darian Mack, who is also the DJ providing that bit of uh, amplification and commentary, if you will, to the stories. Tonight we turn to two on a theme having to do with children and immigration. We'll hear later on from Jennifer Mesa, and right now from Josh Armstrong to the stage and Jessica Watson.
1: Uh, Your next storyteller is, um, his name is Josh Armstrong. He's working at the Gonzaga. In the meantime, he's been trying to find a job at Trader Joe's. So please welcome to the stage, Josh Armstrong.
2: My wife, Shauna, and I were at the urologist's office getting a consult for the snip-snip. You see, we were in the middle of a three-year conversation about whether we were done having children. We, at this point, had three amazing boys. But I would come back to her and say like, I don't know if I have enough room in my heart for a fourth boy. But even more than that was this question that I had, which was, would my life be complete if I didn't get to be the father to a daughter? I just think I like knew about you know wanting a daddy's girl, and I just didn't know if I could get over that. But here we were in the urologist's office. I thought that we were had sort of make this next step, and um, he's telling us about the procedure. It's kind of final, and uh, I look. <laughs> to my wife, Shauna, and she's just got tears streaming down her face. And I turned to the doctor and say like, totally misread this one. We're gonna need a rain check. (laughs) It was during this season of, of life that I had just started taking students to Zambia in Southern Africa. We had a study abroad trip and it was about intercultural leadership, sustainable development. And my main partner in this was a man named Father Dominic Sandu. Oh my gosh, what a generous spirit this man had. Huge toothy grin and taught me so much about what partnership and friendship looks like. Uh, We weren't there to save Zambians. In many ways, he was helping me save myself. And one day we were in the um, Land Cruiser on these sandy roads and I turned to him and I said, you know, if there was ever an opportunity to adopt uh, an orphan child, What what do you think the community would say about that? You know, I was really concerned about having them think that maybe we'd be taking a child. He said, Josh, no, I mean, you would be even more connected to our family, but we really need to find a social worker. So maybe it's a year later and I'm back in Zambia and in the middle of the night, I get this bang on the door and it's Father Clement and he said, I've put my truck in the ditch, I need your help. So we drive out there, and under a canopy of more Zambian stars than I could count, we're trying to figure out how do we get his vehicle out with my truck. And, uh, you know, like many times in Zambia, I mean, it becomes this comedy of airs as like two drunk guys from the bar and an old village woman and this woman who I'm sure is a prostitute all show up each with their own idea, and (laughs) someone produces this rope, and I'm like, there's no way that that's gonna pull that truck out of here. And yet I try, it breaks. About that time another vehicle shows up and this um, man had another stronger rope and remarkably we pull the vehicle out and as I'm driving back to where we stayed, I thought, did it say Ministry of Social Welfare on the side of that vehicle? Francis was a baby faced social worker who had dedicated his entire life to serving his community he somehow became quite enamored with my family and invited Shauna and I into his office. As we entered his office, lights out, Zambian praise music, somehow two volumes too loud, this uh, calendar, I think it was last year's calendar on the wall, and a cup of Rubio's tea. He told us about the process. You know, in Zambia, you have to stay and foster a child for three months, he told us. He told us about the process of identifying orphan children, and we shared with him our desire to find a young girl. At the end of that conversation, he says, I will find you a child. So we return to Spokane, and months later, I get this WhatsApp or Facebook message from Francis, I must talk to you tonight. And I remember so vividly being in our house, me upstairs, Shauna downstairs, and we take this phone call, and he says, you know, I, I found a child and, and she's older than you were hoping, but I'm so compelled by her story. You just have to, you, just, you have to hear me out about this. And he t- described this three, three and a half year old girl, said that she was quite shy, which I wondered how that would work in our family. Uh, he mentions her name and I said, could you spell that for me? P-E-G-G-Y, Peggy. I'm thinking like, Shauna has an Aunt Peggy. And uh, he convinced us, you have to come and, um, and get to know her. So Sean and I start making preparations. Uh, and the day after Christmas 2011, we travel all the way to Lusaka. You know, some of those preparations were travel, but many of them were thinking about the complexity of international adoption, of attachment work, of how we could prepare our own hearts for what it would be like to have and receive the gifts from this child. And when we finally traveled 20 hours to Lusaka, the five or six hours to Solwezi, down from Sulwesi along this bush road that was so sandy that you could not stop, with you know trees on either side, and we get to this very remote village called Kabulumama. And when we get there, walking up to the Faulkner home, I really wanted to be guarding my own heart. Right? I was gonna make a wise decision. And we walk into the room, and there's Francis with Peggy in his arms. And it was love at first sight. Here was this girl who um, even with no English, she had this wicked sense of humor. She had this full heart, the way that she was playing with the kids. The three days we spent there was like magical. Shauna reading to to Peggy, um, us throwing mangoes up into the tree to catch more mangoes. Uh, You know, her and just, I I told Shauna, I think she's like wakes up with a song in her heart. There was a time near the end of our our time there that um, we were walking around the village and she was on my shoulders and she fell asleep. And I thought, wow, she feels safe with us. And then we had to do, which was one of the hardest things ever, which was leave her there for the months to prepare to come back to be there for three months. So saying goodbye, coming back, making preparations for our three children and us to go return and spend three months living in Zambia. So May 2012, we make that epic journey, the five of us. We show up, we come down that dusty road again, we pull up to the Faulkner children's home, and just the presence of our vehicle, there's children that start coming out. And I'm, I'm scanning the crowd looking for her and I don't see her. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this streak of African fabric in this dress and this girl sprinting, her hair straightened as only Zambians would think that Americans would want. <laughs> and she comes running up into my arms and she says really the only few English words that she knows, the names of her brothers. She proceeds to grab Owen, who's just 11 months older than her, and bring her into the only home that she's ever known. You know, those next couple of hours were like a blur, but what I do remember were the women who had raised her as we were leaving, singing, we will never forget, we'll never forget you. We drove a couple hours to the simple home that we had um, rented for the three months in Zambezi, and we started to set it up, and Shauna, as she's known to do, broom kitchen just getting us settled and as i'm known to do i grab a speaker and put on some music and i walk into the living room to find the most epic armstrong dance party all four children and i thought this is a family you know the next three months we learned so much about um peggy and uh you know we would travel to like little villages and she would say is this America? Like, no, this is Chitokaloki. <laughs> is, is this America? No, this is Sulwezi. So um, but we also thought about like, what, what was a name? You know, had she had come to us with a beautiful African name like Chosomo, I'm sure we would have kept that. But we thought about what's a name that we could give her that would have meaning in the US and Zambia. And we decided on grace. It's a second chance. It's a gift without any strings attached. It's a blessing. And so Grace Peggy Armstrong came back with us in August of 2012. You know, uh, maybe a year or two later, I'm trying to piece together her initial story, and I looked at the police report. And on that police report, I found uh, a name and a phone number. So the next time I was in Zambia, I, f- I called that number just to find out a little bit more about uh, what what was her story. And so. I find myself traveling to Sulawesi, and I'm on the front steps of a woman who tells me about November 2007 when she heard something out in front of her house and she thought maybe it was a cat or something and ignored it, and maybe 45 minutes later she looks out her window to find a newly born child wrapped in chitangi, the African fabric. She calls um, the police, they bring her to the hospital, and at the hospital, she said, for, for the next two weeks, every day I went and visited her. And I thought about her, and I always wondered what happened to that girl. And she looks me at the eyes, this woman, Mrs. Ndaba, who just had the presence of somebody's favorite teacher, and she says, you know, I gave her a name. In fact, I gave, her, I gave my firstborn child that same name. And I'm like, wow, what did you name her? And she says, Her first name was Grace. Thank you.
0: From Pivot Spokane, that was Josh Armstrong with his story. There's clearly a theme in tonight's presentation, having to do with children and having to do with immigration and different countries, different systems, different governmental policies, and much more. So with that in mind, we'll return to this stage to welcome the next of the storytellers from Pivot Spokane of June 17th.
1: Our next storyteller is gonna be um, telling you a story about what it would be like if you had all of your life in one folder. So please welcome to the stage, Jennifer Mesa. (laughs) How are you feeling tonight? Well, I'm really nervous. (laughs) And I brought my cue cards. I know I wasn't supposed to, but um, I'm not a storyteller. I'm an urban planner. I can talk about zoning and many other things, but um, (laughs) tonight, tonight I'm going to share a story with you guys. The first time we packed our suitcases, was to, migrate to, was to immigrate to the United States. My mother heavily guarded this file with her, this file that contained irreplaceable documents. They were just so important to her. She was always nervous about where they were and were they in order. And even at my young age, I knew that that file was sacred. You see, that file contained irreplaceable documents that proved our existence, and without them, We'd be be nameless. I was born in Medellin, Colombia, but I left with my family, um, my brother and my mother, because of the drug-related violence that afflicted our region. My mother courageously migrated to the U.S. with two kids, no, no educational background or English, but she had that courage to believe that we deserved a better life. We left with three suitcases, but only arrived with two. My documents and my my suitcase went missing. In Miami, my mamita worked day and night, and when I tell you day and night, it was 24-7. She worked day and night to pay for fees, to pay attorneys, so that we she could invest into her papers. She knew that if she invested in her papers, one day my brother and I would have our papers, and that would mean that. We can have a normal life. We could, we could work formally. We can one day buy a home. But you see, we immigrated to the land of the free, but we had no freedom. We had no freedom to build roots. I started working when I was 11. After school with my mom, I would clean houses, hotel rooms. I even became a full-time nanny once. I don't know how people trusted me with their newborns at 12, (laughs) but they did. (laughs) And all I wanted was to go to school. I, I felt it, and I also felt really guilty because I wanted more, while others around me just continued working without questioning. But without my complete folder, I was stuck. I couldn't, I couldn't pursue my education. Frustrated and seeking to reconnect with my father in Mexico City. I grabbed my folder and suitcase and went to see him. I'd missed my father, and he had promised to take care of me. He had promised to help me go to college. But family tragedy struck, and the life and education that I was hoping to obtain, well, became impossible. And at the same time, I unknowingly violated the the terms of my papers in the U.S. And then I faced a 10-year penalty, not being able to return home to my family. Life continued. I worked. And I also raised a son in Mexico City as a single mother. For a decade, I told my son about the US. I'd share stories about Colombia, our family, pumpkin pie, and how one day we would be able to return and be with our family here. It it was awful to relive my experiences through him because we couldn't We couldn't grow roots, we couldn't have nice things because we were in this constant limbo, waiting to start our life, waiting for those papers, waiting for a sign. But then one morning, I received a call from my mom, screaming, Jenny! Jenny, ya (laughs) llegó tu día! Your day's here, your visa's here, your appointment's here. I couldn't believe it. My, My, finally, I had waited 10 years for this day to go to the U.S. Embassy to have my appointment. We packed up our bags, we grabbed our folder, and we went straight to the U.S. Embassy in Bogota. And I I traveled with my folder, and I held it as tight as my mother did when she left for Colombia. The morning of my visa appointment, I was ready. And When I mean I was ready, my little boy and I, we were clean, my hair was straightened, I wore a blazer to appear, you know, professional and trustworthy. I was so nervous. I got to, as nervous as I am tonight, (laughs) We got to the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, and we got in this line with so many other people like us, with their folders in their hands, and in their other hand, their hearts just waiting. In line, the moments felt like hours, and I was so nervous. I could hear other people's cases, other people being interviewed. Some of them were happy because they had gotten their papers approved and they were going to be reunited with their families. And others were crying because they had had their opportunity taken away. My name got called, and I went in to this small booth, bulletproof window, and through the window, I could see the consul. She asked me a few questions, and I was ready. I was prepared took a deep breath. She asked to see a few documents, and I showed them. And then she simply said, you and your son are approved. That's it. And I went, that's it? it? That took like two minutes. I brought more things. Don't you want to see my documents? I brought pictures. I mean, I got more things. Here's my filing cabinet. And she just coldly said, no. Next in line. I couldn't believe it. It was as if It was as if all my prayers had been answered. I can't even tell you how I made it home from the embassy, you know, to my house. I truly believe we just floated home (laughs) because all of this weight had been lifted from my shoulders. It was surreal. I was so happy. But then, two days later, while celebrating with my family, I got a call from the U.S. Embassy saying that there was a mistake and that my visa had been approved but my sons hadn't because he was born in Mexico. So he was going to have to start his whole new process, and that could take 8 to 15 years. I was devastated. I was truly devastated. And all I could think was, who's this person to determine whether me and my son could be together? Why should his nationality determine his opportunities in life? How could they be so heartless? to offer me an opportunity, but not my son. The next day I went to the embassy and I did not wait in line. I don't know how I made it through, but I made it through guards, I made it through the line, I made it through everybody, and I begged to please speak to a consul because there had to be some sort of error. And they said, well, you see, you are gonna need to prove that he's Colombian and I'm gonna need uh, proof of his Colombian birth certificate. And I looked at her and I went, my God. But you see, I didn't tell you guys that my folder was like a Mary Poppins bag. I already had that. I had already registered, when he, I re- registered him when he was born. He was also Colombian, Colombian and Mexican. And <laughs> I, I, I get the folder out. I get the file out and I said, here, I told you, I had more documents for you to look at. Come on. I give her the file and she just glances at it and says, oh, well, it's not certified in Colombia. It needs to be certified by a Colombian government here. And I said, okay. And I ran around Bogota, a city that's not mine, but I I love Bogota. And I asked everybody on every corner where to certify this document. 24 hours later, we show up to the same embassy, same line, with all the same fears, worries, how am I gonna, how, what am I gonna do, I'm sweating. And then I'm waiting in line and my son stops me and he says, he says, mommy, what happens if they say no? What's gonna happen? Are you gonna go? What's gonna happen with me? And I stopped and all my visa worries just went away. and I, I looked at him and I kneeled down and I said, Papi, I'm your mom and nothing is ever going to take that away. I'm with you. No matter what happens, no matter what happens, either we go back home and start a new dream, you know, we could start building a new dream together, but I'm with you. Fast forward six years later. We immigrated to Spokane. I started working again, but this time I started working towards my education. I got my GED. I went in to get my AA. I had a beautiful baby girl. I advanced in my bachelor's, and then I started preparing for graduate school, because I was aiming high, just like my mama did. And at the same time, the 45th had just gotten elected racist rhetoric was everywhere and anti-immigrant sentiment was on the rise border patrol was in our community and i was wrapped up in a i was wrapped up in a dangerous domestic violence cycle that i couldn't get out of and it was endangering me and my son but i wasn't going to let that stop me i got here i got all the way here so i applied to phd programs to pursue my doctorate and I also applied to programs that would be in the East Coast, where my family is. You see, I made it all the way here to the U.S., but I needed to be—I was still a country away from them, and I needed to be home. I needed to be with them. And I also started applying for my citizen application because I was going to take action. And shortly after, I received acceptance and full-ride scholarships into some of the most prestigious universities in the U.S. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that I could make it, that I would be accepted, and that I would actually have the choice and the liberty to to, to decide where I'll go. I had everything planned. I had a job. I had housing for my kids. I had everything. I had a parenting plan for my daughter. And then one day, I got a notice from the courts that my daughter's daughter's, um, parenting plan was not going to be honored. Instead of discussing my parenting abilities in the courts, I ended up, I was fighting for my dignity in the courts. You see, I was being accused of being a danger because I'm Colombian. I was being accused of being connected to the drug cartel and to criminals in Mexico and in Colombia. I drive a Toyota. 2006 Camry, like no, (laughs) (laughs) grad school. That I was unfit to be a parent because of my immigration background. And that my activism was politicizing my children and endangering them. That I was racist towards white people and that I was an immigrant that was abusing public resources. None of that was true. They had no proof besides the fact that I was an immigrant. But in the Trump era, that shit worked. Instead of discussing me as a parent, my stability, and what I provided for my kids, I was on the stand for five days discussing my father, who had passed away 18 years ago, details about his life. Instead of discussing how I feed and provide for my children, I had to give details of how I immigrated here, how I made it to the U.S. Instead of discussing, you know, their involvement in school, I had to, I had to discuss why and how my aunt had a pool. Because apparently only rich people have pool and drug cartels. All those familiar feelings came up again. That uncertainty, that losing everything, that, and even worse, just having my immigration jeopardized. What would I do? I've been working my entire life for this. And those same feelings and questions came over me that I had asked m- about my son six years ago. You know, why should my nationality determine my future outcome? Why is it that I'm seen as an unfit person because I'm a Colombian immigrant? Does that make me less, does that make me less of a mother? And. And it was very difficult. It almost, it almost broke my heart. But being an immigrant doesn't make you less. I left that court diminished. I, was, I felt so little. And here I was in the community telling everybody to stand up for discrimination, stand up for yourself, know your rights. But I couldn't even stand up for myself. I made it home and my son took one look at me and he said, Mommy, those lies are nothing. I I'm your son. We are your children. And nothing is ever going to take that away. No matter what happens. We're your kids. Either we bo- all go together or we don't go or we stay home and start building a new life. I'm with you. Thank you. My son is over there, just graduated high school. Say hi, Porjo.
0: <laughs> that was Jennifer Mesa. Earlier, we heard from Josh Armstrong. We have one more night of these stories from Pivot Spokane from June 17th. Tomorrow night, we'll hear from Kiantha Duncan and also from Darian Mack, who has been the DJ for this performance and whose DJ intros we have heard on this broadcast. The host for this has been Jessica Watson. Join us tomorrow night for the conclusion.